five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Sexton, kind of a replay of yesterday's show. Hey, look, I've got green hair today. How cool is that? I'm, I look kind of like a like a, a woke tard with my green hair. Let me uh, let me see if I can fix that. If I can't fix it, then you're gonna have to. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's better. Much better. I don't look all woke tardy, do I? There we go. Thanks for being here. Another edition of uh, 15 Minutes of Flame. I'm Robert Phoenix. And uh, behind me, excuse me, we have a picture of old New York. We're going to cover a little bit of old New York today on the show as we go back and recap our deconstruction of Henry George. And, um, you know, there's a lot to chase right now. We could talk about uh, monkeypox. We could talk about, oh God, the fuel thing. The fuel thing is big. And I, you know, one of the questions I have with the whole fuel thing is that the uh, petroleum industry are one of the biggest players on the planet. And they seem to be just okay with this, right? I mean, you would think that they would have some kind of uh, hardcore sort of lobbying position. Uh, with the Biden administration, but uh, we don't hear a peep coming out of the oil people, do we? Why is that? Is it because they're making obscene profits? Are we really experiencing a gas shortage? Or is it something that's being produced and they're piggybacking on the production? Like, what's really going on there? Are we just being told that we have a gas shortage? And is it a really amazing opportunity for the oil companies to skyrocket their prices. I mean, it's, it's something to think about because and again, I'm not on the inside of these conversations. I don't know anybody in the beltway except for Giuseppe. He's not even there anymore. He lives in Virginia now. So what's, what's really happening here, right? What's really going on in that, in that world? Because you would think that the guys in the oil industry would say, okay, well, you know, this spells the end of our, our business and there's a lot of things happening right now. For instance, I believe Israel has decoupled from the dollar. That's right. Our 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 staunchest allies in the Middle East, the one true democracy in the Middle East, has uncoupled from the U.S. dollar and is going in on the yuan and the other basket of currencies. So they're getting they're getting bricked up. So what's really going on here? What's, what's really happening? Well, what's really happening is that they're engineering the demolition of the West. So what does that leave for the oil industry? Well, I would imagine that the people at the top of these 
you know, the seven sisters, which are global, by the way, they're not just a United States venture uh, corporation slash operation. You coming over here? All right, look who's here. It's the Astro Cat. Coming in, coming in hot today. He's been waiting for the show. He's been up for a while. Got his food in. Got his protein on. So he's ready to rock and roll today. So what's what's really going on with these people? Because they must know that it's not like they're being held hostage. Oh, we can't do anything. We can't do anything because that bad man Biden has stopped our leases and, and shut down our pipelines. We can't. These people have so much fucking money, influence, and power. You think you think they're begrudgingly going along with the mandates of a senile fool who might not even be real half the time? What do they know? What do they know? And what are they really invested in at this point? Are they invested in the new green economy? Is that is that where their their uh, dollars are going? Look, I don't have the time to do all this stuff, but if I had a research team, what I would do is I would set the research team out on a mission to find the top five biggest green energy producers, look to see who's on their boards, and to see where the crossover is with the petroleum industry. And I bet you with two or three of those companies, you'd find some. Of course, if I was in the petroleum business, I would try to, you know, be diverse in terms of my my energy holdings, because at some point, my energy holdings uh, may not be as solid as they were at any given point in time in the past. So there's a lot to break down. We've got the, the monkeypox thing. Belgium is now under quarantine. This is how it starts, right? It starts with a little fucking tiny place in Europe, Liechtenstein, Belgium, Austria, and then there's the domino effect. Then there's the next country and the next country. Because you know that the EU is in lockstep. Uh, on Friday's show, which I am going to be, I downloaded it this morning, and I'm going to be separating those out into separate videos. I'll put them up on Rumble. I mean, they're already on YouTube, but uh, I'll put them up on Rumble. And I'll also have separate MP3s, uh, and I'll put them up on Transistor, which means that you'll be able to listen to them. If you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, you'll get to listen to Friday's show, which I do over on YouTube. It's a great show. And one of the things that we talked about with Hattie McCoskey was, um, you know, the, the, the paperwork that they, you know, they always leave a paper trail. They, I mean, they found a document, there's a document out now that you can uh, access and it, it, it's like event 21, but for monkeypox. Okay. So that's out there. It's got all the names, all the players. We know, we know, we know where this is going, right? They may throw us a little bit of a curveball. Now Joe Biden is standing up for Taiwan. Oh, we'll defend Taiwan at any cost. Now all of a sudden he's becoming fucking Donald Trump because obviously that's what they want him to do. They want him to become Donald Trump. You know who's more like Donald Trump than Joe Biden? It's Jasper. Jasper is the orange man. Look at him. Yep, you're the orange man. Jasper for president. Jasper 2024. Jasper, I know I might be jumping the shark. It's two years out, but you're worth it, buddy. I should start on your campaign now. I mean, think about it. 
if somebody could identify however they want to identify as they could identify if you're a man, you can identify as a woman or a woodchuck or, you know, I mean, it's all out there. So why couldn't Jasper identify as a human and run for president? I think he's going to be right around in 2024. He'll be around Biden age. Be perfect. He'll be a little senile. He'll be a little senile. You'll fit right in with all the other older candidates, especially if Trump runs. And you're, you might have an extremely strong showing. Keep tuned. Stay tuned for Jasper 2024. How is everybody? Uh, if you're here for the first time, I hope you're here for the first time. If you're here for the first time, that'd be awesome. And if you're here for, oh, the hundredth time or the thousandth time, thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. We do this every day. Hopefully we get it off uh, on the dot at 9-11. Today was a little a little rocky today because for whatever reason, the code uh, from BoxCast was wonky. And all I saw on the homepage was a black screen. It was like the black death cube. And I had to go in and I had to do the presets and uh, essentially copy and paste new code, which put me behind a little bit. So, and I, before that, I was, I was waiting for the download of uh, Friday's show to, to finish up before I started. And I started a little bit late, but it's okay. We're all here. And thank you for being here. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about early in the show is our sponsor. And that is True Hemp Science. I hope you enjoyed the Charlie Sexton video. I hope there was sound. I talked about that video at length yesterday which you probably, maybe you heard me talk about it. Maybe you didn't hear the video. But um, again, Charlie Sexton, great talent, still lives in Austin. And I, I think if he lived in New York or England, he would have been a bigger star. Maybe that's not important to Charlie. Maybe Charlie's A-OK with just being a big star in a small universe, which is Austin. Okay, here we go. This is True Hemp Science. And I got to say, it helped me out again yesterday. I went to the, uh, the dentist. It's Operation Mercury Removal. So this has been a multi-tiered process. And the first thing that happened is my, my, my old filling cracked. This is what kick-started everything. So my old filling cracked, and I had to go in to uh, Dr. Jones' office and get that thing drilled out. That was the mercury removal part. Then I had to get a new crown. So when you get a new crown, you got to, you get to have a temporary crown. Well, yesterday they pulled the temporary crown off and we're trying to fit the new crown on top of it. The problem was that there was a piece of adhesive from the old crown, the temporary that was on part of the, 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 the remnant of the tooth is like a post, right? Because they want to have something to like, they take a mold of it and they stick the new crown on top of it. So um, there was some adhesive still on the tooth. And wouldn't you know it, there's also a nerve ending right there. So, you know, there's a scraping going on. There's the nerve thing going on. I was having a hard time getting numbed up. I think I, I, it's the most shots of Novocaine I've ever had in my mouth before. 
I think I had about half a dozen. And it's not because they weren't putting in the right plays. It was because um, I was pretty buzzed on caffeine. That would have been a lot worse had I not had some CBD to mellow me out. And that's where all this is going because I brought my own, I think, but I think I left it at the office and um, Dr. Joan actually has CBD available through true hemp science at the office to help take the edge off of your uh, dental experience. And I'm convinced that if I hadn't done the CBD, I would have been a fucking stark raving madman with that drill and the, and the, uh, the scalpel, the scraper, whatever that thing was clipping the nerve and the exact point where the adhesive of the, of the, uh, temporary crown was to, I mean, wouldn't that be like a vision of hell? Like you're in a dental chair for eternity. You're just in a dental chair for eternity. And they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. More Novocaine, more scraping, more nerve, more Novocaine, more scraping, more nerve. That's hell. That's hell. And then maybe you can get up and go to the bathroom or something, but automatically you're whisked back to the chair. And that, that's for a turn. You know, I think people have all their individual hells that they bring with them in the afterlife. That's not going to be my hell, by the way. I'm hoping like hell that I don't have to go through my hell when all this is said and done. So you, you exercise hell from your, uh, your, your experience. So I have to say though, that the hemp, uh, the CBD from true hemp science kept me at a very manageable level yesterday. That was definitely pain and anxiety management. And it came through like a champ. Um, you, if you get a hundred dollars worth of the great true hemp science product, you'll get $20 or more depending on how much Chris has on the side. Uh, and all you got to do is put in 15 minutes that we've, we've switched it out. So 15 minutes is fine. You put 15 minutes in your code and he'll know you're from this website, truehemscience.com backslash reference backslash 23 go and get some of the good stuff and help yourself deal with things like inflammation and pain and if you're going to a dentist i highly recommend getting dosed up before you go all right we got a functional chat today let's get into it we got uh let's get right to the top we got empath miguel uh, hopefully there'll be less reading from Wikipedia and more talk about the content of the article. <laughs> oh, you're a tough critic, Michael. Tough critic. Um, let's see. We got uh, another Michael. Michael's sister, you know what's going on? There's Thor at the door. Renee is here. And let's see, Ryan. So Ryan was commenting over the fact that the Sunday night show started too late. And I agree. So I'm going to do one more Sunday night show at eight o'clock next week. And then I'll tell everybody that moving forward, we're going to start at six o'clock central standard time on the Sunday night show, which means that you'll get uh, people on the, on the uh, East coast. It'll be 7 PM for you. 
And then on the West Coast, it'll be 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So we can run that for three hours and be done by 9 p.m. And you people on the West East Coast can get to bed at an early time. Uh, let's see, who do we have? Kelly B's here. There's Sony. And Maurice 100. What's going on, Maurice? Uh, let's see who else. We have Tamara's here. Hello, Tamara. Good to see you. I look for more precise word and start shenanigans going to Washington, D.C. They're simply crazy, which it indeed it is absurd. Well, there's surreal. There's surreal. There's there's complicit. That's another part is complicit. There's a complicit nature to it all. Uh, the beautiful one, Wendy says, is here. Hi, Wendy. Good to see you. Good to have you back. Beth Berry's in the house. Hi, Beth. Where's my girl, Fran? Is Fran here today? Yes, from some kind of wonderful. Michael's got a great ear. No wonder he was a fucking good DJ in San Francisco. So, okay, that scene is some kind of wonderful. Yes, you know the scene I'm talking about. It's where Eric Stoltz, Mary, what's her name? I forget her name. Uh, the yuppie dude who's trashing her and trying to make her grovel and humiliate her in front of everybody at this party to beg to get back to him. Well, that's interrupted by a skinhead and his motley crew. And the skinhead is played by Elias Cotillas. The rather, you know, one of those roles, it's brief but memorable. Like, he's a guy you don't want to mess with, okay? And he and Eric Stoltz happen to be buddies. Well, they show up years later in another movie together called The Prophecy with Christopher Walken in Vigo Mortensen as Lucifer, a very strange movie, kind of part wild at heart, detective film, kind of end of the world, apocalyptic saga, kind of part Native American prophecy, supernatural. There was a period there where they, were, they had these kind of Native American supernatural films. There was one called The Manitou, Pretty scary movie, actually. Um, actually, looking back, it was scary then, not so scary now. Higher scary quotient when it came out. But uh, it had a little element of that. So, but it does. the movie doesn't know what it wants to be. Is it a gothic love story? Is it uh, a supernatural crime thriller? Is it a temptation about human values and human expectation story? Is it a Native American supernatural kind of thriller? It doesn't know what it wants to be. As a movie, I think it, it fails, actually. It's not very good. It has interesting elements. Uh, Elias Cotillas, the skinhead from Some Kind of Wonderful, plays a former Catholic priest who fell away from the church, hello, Chiron in Pisces, and it starts to follow the path of a strange murder. And the murderer leads him into the realm of fallen angels who have a plan of sealing off heaven for humans, for humanity, because God placed humans above the fallen angels. And Eric Stoltz uh, plays one of the angels. I think he plays Gabriel, either Gabriel or Michael, one of the two. I know Vigo Mortensen plays Lucifer. He's actually quite good at Lucifer. Kind of steals the movie. Brief scenes, steals the movie. Imagine that. Uh, let's see. Yes, you do win. 
Is this yesterday's video? Yes, it is yesterday's video. I'm just playing it again because, you know, some people didn't get to hear it. I guess I missed this movie. It was written by John Hughes. It was not directed by John Hughes. I think the director was Michael Winter. I could be wrong about that. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? We have Marie C. Pines. Hey, we got some new. Marie, good to see you, C. Pines. Welcome to the show. Ukrainian officers are now to shoot their surrendering troops. Surrendering troops must not be going well for them after all. That's what the, you know, that's what uh, Stalin told his COs. If you see anybody that's surrendering or running, you shoot them on the battlefield. And Stalin knocked off a few of his uh, generals in front of people uh, in Moscow. So he was more than, more than happy to show them how it's done. Here's Fran. We can start the show now. Good to see you, Fran. Anybody else? Anybody else going once, going twice? You're doing three times $700 million gas plant going through final red tape to be built on the shore of Lake Superior. Well, that's worth watching. Uh, just got back from first saying hi. You're going, going to get dressed. So we're, we're, we're being informed with Tamara's social plans for the day. Uh, let's see who else do we have here. Anybody else? Queen Lisa here. Orange cat, good, right? He would fucking clean up. Why the obscene oil and coal companies like Exxon would be down with green energy? Because even they discovered they're an industry of parasites and grunt labor. Absolutely, they don't care. I don't think they have a conscience. I don't think they have a conscience. They've been doing this for a while. They basically staged two coups in Iran in order to make sure that Iran wasn't nationalizing their petroleum. They don't care. They'll just, they'll, they'll go from oil to green. They don't, it's not about being conscious. Look, there are forms of energy that could be used that would be way more efficient and more decentralized. They don't want decentralization. Now, apparently I'm going to get out of chat. Here we go. Um, apparently the, the guy that got shot, the one guy that got shot in Buffalo, because we'll still talk about Buffalo because the Buffalo symbolism is still out there. still permeating. And there, there is that amazing image from October of 2021 where you have the golden gorilla across from the golden bull. And that's really the image of the time that we're in right now. The interface between being buffaloed in the next phase of the, uh, the, the, the shutdown, the planetary shutdown. So supposedly the cop, all right, he was, he was an ex cop, if I'm not mistaken, or off duty cop. The one guy who got shot was working on a project and the project was an engine that processed water. Apparently had a YouTube channel. I guess that got taken down. The one guy now there were supposedly 10 people who were killed, but there's only one charge of homicide and it's that guy. So did nine other people uh, mysteriously come back to life where they resurrected again? Is that what happened? Hmm. I'm not so, I'm not so sure. I'm, did they even really, again, what's going on there? We're being buffaloed. We are, we are being, so was, was this a hit? 
is this another part of the underlying thread that uh, seems to be running through this scam? Quite possibly. So behind me, we have another uh, uh, part of New York, not Buffalo. This is old school New York here. And we have a number of people with top hats on, which is usually a pretty good sign that there's some clout and some power uh, in, the, uh, in the streets. Top hat, hierarchy, bowler, lowarchy. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Henry George. Now, yeah, I did read part of the Wikipedia because you have to understand the influence of Henry George. Now, what's really interesting is when you look at images of Henry George, there's a picture of him where he's got, let me see if I can find it. He's got his hand in his pocket. Look, they even have a Henry George Association of Israel. He has his hand in his vest. Here's a picture of uh, Tolstoy loved Henry George. He was told he was into him. People do not argue with the teaching of Henry George. They simply do not know it. And here's a picture of Tolstoy and Henry George together in the same room. This is his book, uh, Progress and Poverty. Let me see if I can find the hidden hand picture because it shows you that there's probably um, a lot more behind Henry George than obviously meets the eye. He's a Virgo. You know, he's an early Virgo. Of course, he's going to have his socioeconomic and political theory, which I do want to spend a little more time with today. So this is the big book, Progress in Poverty. Let's see if I can find the hidden hand picture. He ran for mayor of New York. Here we go. So this is Henry George right here. Let me bring this up. This is him displaying who he is. So these are, he ran for, um, I think, mayor of New York and governor of New York, and he failed on both occasions. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper. You have um, Governor Morris, Thomas Dewey. I think that's Dewey, that's Morris, that's Cooper. And then over here we have Henry George Cooper, Dewey, there it is right there. So we have, um, no, that's not, that's Dewey. That's Dewey. This is the guy that lost in the election. Anyway, here's Henry George, and he's showing you who and what he's about. He's part of the hidden hand. So Henry George is not necessarily an organic figure. So when you look at the Schofield Bible and Cyrus Schofield, the guy who supposedly wrote that Bible, he's another guy who's this made man. And what happens with Schofield, I'm, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Schofield to give you the Henry George comparison. And that Schofield was, he was, a, he was an alcoholic. He was 
a philanderer. He was a guy who was living on the edge. And he was scooped up. He had some literary ability, probably not a ton. Now, if we look at this period of time, maybe through the lens of the of the reset of a civilization that had been reintroduced to the world. If we look at it from that perspective, then having people with moderate liter literary skills, like say a Henry George or um, a Cyrus Schofield, in a world of, of a panoply of reset characters, they might stand out and they might be able to, you know, carry some of the water for the people that are behind them. Now with Schofield, he gets snatched up by this guy, George Dealey, who is the publisher of the uh, Dallas star. Of course, Dealey Plaza in Dallas is named after George Dealey and George Dealey is a 33rd degree Mason. And he sets Cy Cyrus Schofield off on re-annotating the Bible because that's going to be the, the, the big thing. It's going to be the Schofield Bible. And they're going to have all these annotated pieces in the margins of that Bible so they can essentially retell the Bible story, put less of an emphasis on Jesus and his works and more of an emphasis on Revelation. And it's the first work that talks about the rapture. The rapture is basically liner notes that are put in at the mar on the margins believe in the first editions of the Schofield Bible, which I think might be either number one or two. It's like King James, Schofield, they're, they're kind of neck and neck. So the, the, uh, uh, the dispensational story comes out of the Schofield Bible. And Schofield can't do shit. I mean, he's, he stumbles with the writing and the transliteration, and it takes a while. And there are a number of rewrites. And eventually, I think he goes to Scotland. And somebody in Scotland basically does the rest of the heavy lifting for Cyrus Schofield. So he's like a front man. Now, I'm not saying that Henry George is a front man. But when you see the hand, the hidden hand in the, uh, the Napoleonic gesture here, that tells you that there are forces behind Henry George who are promoting his work. And his, his, let's go back to Wikipedia. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm going to go there for a minute because I think it's fairly important to understand the foundation for his, uh, his work. Because in his world, you, you, don't, you don't really own, it's, it's not like the state owns your property. Theoretically, you still have an investment in your property, but you cannot profit from it. You cannot have an accrued generational wealth in the George model. So I think we got up to his career in journalism, his political career. Um, so he had a stroke in 1890 after a global speaking tour Concerning land rights and the relation between rent and poverty, the stroke greatly weakened him, and he never truly recovered. Despite this, George tried to remain active in politics. Against the advice of his doctors, George campaigned for New York City mayor again in 1897. This time as an independent Democrat, I will make the race if I die for it. The strain of the campaign precipitated his second stroke. 
leading to his death four days before the election. Well, that's a little suspicious. Um, an estimated 100,000 people visited Grand Central Palace during the day to see Henry George's face with an estimated number crowding outside, unable to enter and held back by police after the palace doors closed. The Reverend Lyman Abbott, Father Edward McGlynn and Rabbi Gustav Guttel, H. Neber Newton, Episcopalian and John Sherwin Crosby delivered addresses. Separate memorial services were held in sh- elsewhere in Chicago 5,000 people waited in line to hear memorial dresses by former governor of Illinois, John Peter uh, Altgelt and John Lancaster Spalding. Mayor Strong broke down and cried at a meeting calling George a martyr. Every movement needs a martyr. The New York Times reported later that evening an organized funeral procession of about 2,000 people left from Grand Central Palace and made its way through Manhattan to the Brooklyn Bridge, the procession was all the way thronged on either side by crowds of silent watchers. The procession then went to Brooklyn, where the crowd at Brooklyn City Hall was the densest ever seen. There were thousands on thousands at City Hall. So in modern times, you know, he still probably would have been elected, even though he was dead. That wouldn't have been a problem. And then they could have just created a latex mold of his face, found an actor or two, and voila. Henry George is able to become governor of New York. But back then, I don't think they had the uh, the technology. I, so what you're seeing here is somebody who was, if we can believe the accounts, and why not? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll trust the uh, information of the day. Extremely popular. And this guy had gone on a world fucking speaking tour, and what he's doing is he's he's friends with Tolstoy. So he's seeding these ideas in the populace of Russia, right? This is all pre, but it's not long after George does his global tour that some of his ideas begin to take root because, I mean, when we look back in that time now, and we, let's say we are looking through the lens of the reset. There's a group of people who, from the jump, have their fingers on the pulse of the uh, of the resources. And we in, in here in this country, of course, you know we we know them as being like the Rockefellers and um, the Carnegies, you know, the the robber barons, right? The robber barons are the ones who come in and essentially lay claim to a lot of the resources that are in my, in my opinion, they were found. I mean, they stumbled upon a lot of these really interesting technologies and ideas, and they probably had Tesla come in and help them with some of them. And maybe Tesla was able to innovate on what he found. Clearly he probably had some experience in, in uh, Europe with some of the technologies and they were able to, commodify them and create the second industrial revolution, which is taking place almost right at the death of Henry George. It's like his death is a prelude to um, the 20th century, right? He dies in 1897. Four years after that, McKinley will be shot at the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. But his ideas have already spread. And 
but 13 years, but uh, 17 years later, actually, you're looking at 17, 24 years later, just a little over a Saturn cycle, half a Saturn cycle. Um, Henry George's ideas fuel the Bolshevik and communist revolution in Russia. Now, when you go back and you look at what happened in, in Russia with the Bolshevik revolution, they keep tweaking the model because early on it's like, okay, the state's going to own everything. I mean, it's just going to be pure communism. The state will own everything. Now, because they couldn't roll it out all at once, which we've talked about before, they had to go in and deal with the kulaks and property owners in um, central and Eastern Russia. So they, they had to, they had to kind of morph this model. I mean, initially it was like, great, the state will own everything because we'll be able to go into Moscow, we'll seize everything, and then we'll own it. So we'll, we'll plunder um, the jewelry and the riches of the Romanovs and any other uh, of the Russian elite who do not convert and give us their shit. And hopefully, you know, we spare them and give them a seat at the table, right? So a lot of that was their, you know, it was their license to go in and start snatching resources. Yeah, the state will own it. Sure, why not? But ultimately, it doesn't work, which I have talked about before. And just prior to the death of Lenin, he's realizing, like, you know, we got to change this shit. And even with the Kulaks, they realized that if they took the Kulaks land, the Kulaks wouldn't lift a finger. Like, why would they want to do something? Why would they want to produce wheat? Because they're not getting anything out of it. So they said, okay, well, let's let them produce it. We'll tax them. Well, that's old school. Like that, that's, that's just old school capitalism. That's state sponsored old school capitalism. They had to pull, you know, it's like they're playing a football game and they're, they're, they're running uh, the option and the option isn't working. It's like, okay, let's go, let's, let's go to a pro set and let's throw the ball a little bit. And that's what they did. And what, what Stalin does, and of course, we've talked about this before, Stalin, Stalin kills, right? He, he hasn't really killed Lenin. Lenin has, just like Henry George, he has a stroke. He has a, he has a couple of strokes, and eventually Lenin's out. But what Stalin does do is Stalin kills Lenin's letter. And it's funny how in the former Soviet Union, they would, have, they would write these letters. That's what Khrushchev did. He wrote this letter. And Khrushchev wrote the letter denouncing Stalinism. Lenin wrote a letter essentially denouncing Leninism or Bolshevism because it was not working. It wasn't working. So, you know, Henry George and his ideas do influence the Soviet Union. The difference between the two is that in George's world, you get this hybrid model and the hybrid model is, okay, we're going to be into things like free trade. Like we'll, we'll, op- you know, in that, in that sense, he's more like a globalist really. And maybe that's who he's carrying water for was the globalist because, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll limit people's access to land and being able to profit off the land. We will give them a reasonable place to live in so that they can feel like they have some ownership over the place, but they will not be able to sell that place 
at a profit and in many cases won't even be able to pass it down. It's the land, obviously, which is worth something. Whatever your building is, like it's going to depreciate from the moment you, you know, put that final, you know, nail in the wall, right? It starts to depreciate. It's like driving the car off the lot. The thing that appreciates is the land, not the building itself. That's basic real estate. When I just ask Michael, he knows all about this stuff. Michael, Michael can speak to what we're talking about here. Um, so George does feel like he's a bit of a made man. You can see he's doing, he's doing this thing, the hidden hand and who's sponsoring him to do these world tours. The guy didn't have a pot to piss in. I mean, we looked at it that yesterday when we were going through his Wikipedia page and he was poor most of the time. So who sponsors him for a world tour? Who sponsors his campaigns in running for uh, new, the governor and mayor of New York, right? Who, who's behind him? His book sells a shit ton of copies. That's what we're led to believe. More copies than Das Kapital. So people are reading his book and thinking that, oh, these are the ideas that are going to recalibrate the social system. And it's happening right at the beginning of the 20th century, right at the beginning of the 20th century. And you have a bunch of people who I think are part of the reset and that they have a social amnesia that they're dealing with. And so when you insert these new ideas, and especially if, you know, you give them, let's say 50 years worth of cruising around. I mean, look at these buildings. The thing about, we're looking at this. This is from, I think, New York in the early 1900s. Look at how old some of these buildings look in the background. I mean, they look really fucking old, old and weathered. We can say, well, you know, they built them in uh, the 1700s. Do you, do you understand the technology that was available in the 1700s based on what we know? Here, let's take this building over here in the background. Now, if you were watching the show, you'd be able to see what I'm talking about, but I'll describe it for you. It looks like a classic medieval cathedral from Europe. Classic. The idea behind the cathedrals in Europe was that they were created by the intense love and passion for God. I, when I was in college... I have one of my favorite professors was this guy named Marvin Nathan. He was really brilliant. He was hard. He was a hard professor, which I liked. You know, I liked the fact that I had to fucking work hard in his class in order to understand the material and even get a grade. So I think I had him for three classes. One was humanism and mysticism, which was great. Then he taught a class on um, medieval uh, culture and literature, which I, which I took. And then he taught a class on San Francisco, which I took. And what's interesting about those classes is that they kind of dovetail. And back then when I was in the, uh, the medieval language and literature and culture class, the, 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 the common story was that because you loved God so much, you would take part in building these cathedrals and that you would do it because it would allow you to have a higher place in heaven when you passed away. Right. But these cathedrals based on 
the timing around them sometimes would take anywhere between 150 to 200 years, according to the commonly held theory, which meant that your children and your children's children would also work in the cathedral, that they were transgenerational. Like this is the, 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 the idea that they sold to get these things built. I don't think it holds water. And I'll tell you why it doesn't hold water. Because if you look at what happens with generations, we could even use the communist model. In the beginning of the revolution, you have fervor and froth. It's like, this is it, man. We have found the thing. It's going to level the playing field. It will, it will translate, especially in the case of Russia, it'll translate into a national identity. That's the one thing that people don't understand about the Soviet Union is that it was both communistic and nationalistic. They prided themselves as being at the vanguard of civilization, that they were setting the new standard, that they would outpace the old models of democracy and capitalism, which ultimately metastasized into fascism. So you can't take out the, the Russian element of nationalism with communism. Now, there's also a very interesting egalitarian angle because there were you know, not a ton, but there were a number of black Americans who wanted out of America and they actually moved to the Soviet Union because, you know, they think they're going to get a better shake, that there won't be any, any racism or classism and there are still to this day descendants of those black American immigrants who fled the United States. I've seen documentaries on them and they speak fluent Russian. There was one guy who left Russia and came back to America. He didn't speak English. He's fucking speaking Russian. He was born in Russia. And I think he went to someplace in the South where his father came from. It's a really weird juxtaposition. So when you look at the Soviet Union, like they didn't see, they didn't see color. They they just saw a member of the of the Workers Party, but underneath of, they had a very Russian and very nationalistic pride in what they were doing. But that said, you know you start off being shot out of a cannon in 1913 and by the time the 70s roll around you're about two generations into this thing and guess what happens all that fervor and all that froth all the you know the platitudes and the in the in the talking points of the party um you know they they evaporate i gotta check my time here let me just see where we are Okay, good. We're up to 1041. Excellent. So I can talk a little bit more. Okay, where are we? Let me get back. Then there's also the money issue. And that, there were a lot of factors as to why the, the wall fell and why there was this social reform um, in Russia and, or the Soviet, and it had to do with the fact that you had these, you know, leading members of the Politburo. Now you also had the oligarchs who were starting to make a lot of moves. 
and the oligarchs and you had high high ranking members of Politburo, who, by the way, Vladimir Putin is one, and they realized that they can't win, that capitalism has infiltrated. They've got McDonald's in Russia. They can't win. So it's like, okay, let's shut this thing down. Let's position ourselves to be in place to have the, you know, the spoils of the struggle, the, the fruits of the labor. And that's exactly what they do. They don't have that much of an interest in communism anymore. This is what happens two to three generations out. I mean, really, from 1913 to, let's say, 1983, that's 70 years. That's two generations. Some of these cathedrals took them 200 years to build. That's the story. How many generations is that? We Back then, people didn't live that long, theoretically. If you lived into your 60s, you were an old fuck, right? You were an old fuck. You were lionized as being something special, you know, you had some, some kind of gift from God to be able to live that long. And, and, and let's, you know, and maybe you weren't in the greatest, maybe, maybe you weren't in the greatest shape. If you were, boy, you were really an anomaly. So that's not just say two generations, because we've seen that with the, the, the Russia timescale. You're, you're talking about what, six generations. If you live to your 40, five generations, by the time you get to the fourth generation, they're looking around, why the fuck am I doing this? Because you love God so much. That's why. Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, let me get back up there and put this little gargoyle on the cornice. I don't think that's what was going on. I mean, I had to go back in some Mercury retrograde moment. I had to go back, and this is a while ago. I had to revisit that. I'm like, because for a long time, I believed that. I believed that. This is how it was done. I don't believe that anymore. And the reason why I don't believe it is because we look at, look at this country. Look at, let's go from the baby boomers and they come onto the scene, let's say roughly 1945. So 45 to 95, that's 50 years. That's a century. 95, we're seeing the first millennials being born. Well, they're born around 85, but 95, they're coming in hot. Right, they're coming in hot. So we go uh, 60 years, 70 years, 2005, 2015, 70, 70 plus years. This thing's gone to shit. Nobody really has the same values or cares about the same things. Now, clearly, we've got a lot more social engineering, right? We have things like television and mass media and the internet, like that is going to tweak people. We've got all kinds of other things that are going to tweak people. We've got vaccines. We've got GMOs. We, so the, the mutation, the generational mutation is well underway. So everything speeds up much faster. But still, right, 200 years and you're going to build this. I don't think it works that way. So you would have to go back. I think this is around 19... 05, something like that. It's the early 1900s. You don't see any cars here. It's horse and buggy world still. Look at Jasper. He looks like a monster. He's like a giant monster in the streets of New York. Get him, Jasper. Get him. Put a top hat on you. He's, he's bigger than the horse. 
So I don't buy the story. I don't, I don't buy the story. These things, they would have had to have started 1700 probably. I mean, it's not as great as the, uh, you know, Shark Cathedral or Notre Dame, but that's pretty ornate. That's really ornate work. I wish I could zoom in on that. Look at this stuff here. That looks like the Star Trek symbol, doesn't it? Right up there. That totally looks like the Star Trek symbol. That's really interesting. I mean, when you look at these cathedrals and really break them down, they're fucking mind-blowing. The stuff that they have on them and in them, they're just, and we couldn't, we couldn't reproduce that today. We wouldn't be able to do it. So this is the world that Henry George is seeding his ideas into and being able to travel around the world without a lot of money, right? Being able to publish a book and have that book go viral. His book went viral, sold more copies than Das Kapital. So why is Henry George important now? Well, it's because when you look at the principles of Henry George's work, AKA Georgism, they're kind of baked into agenda 21 and communitarianism. And you know, what happens is that they, they will take elements out of a certain thing and they'll, they'll extract it, synthesize it and put it in the new model. And when we look at something like a piece of legislation, a lot of times when they roll the legislation out, it is obscene. And they know that people won't buy into it, but, that, but they don't want that legislation. What they want is a more, more watered-down version of the thing because buried in that watered-down version is the exact thing that they want. Everything else is about hyperbole and hysteria and pushing back and pushing back and pushing back. And then what happens? Oh, we'll go back. We'll take it back and we'll, we'll make a few modifications. So they take out the most objectionable parts and then they leave the, the nasty little kernels. Okay, we'll vote on that. Now they don't even give a shit about that anymore. Now they'll just, they'll just sign executive orders. And there's, I mean, really, there's no, think about this for a second now. We'll get back to Henry George because I want to show you sort of the breakdown of George. But when Trump was in office, he was doing a lot of, I mean, the whole executive order thing, we've looked at it and presidents have abused the fuck out of executive orders. And there's a list. Who was the most egregious? I might've been, was it, was it Bush? It might have been Bush. Did you see the Bush thing, by the way, where uh, the two Russian guys were pranking him? I'll, I'll play that for the uh, for the show ends. These two Russian guys prank him on. He's a village idiot. So I knew this guy one one time. He's pretty a uh, pretty talented video editor, and uh, he was friends with Terrence McKenna, and he did a movie. It's actually a pretty good movie, and it's really it's a bunch of outtakes with him and Terrence McKenna getting stoned. That's really what it is, but they're, in, they're creative and it's intelligent. So you get Terrence McKenna's thoughts, like they're getting high and McKenna's ruminating on certain things. It's sort of like McKenna's stoned outtakes. When he was living in Austin and his video company in Austin, he was actually um, 
contracted to do work for the Bush family when George Bush was president. And I, his name is Ken. And Bush had a speech or something about the Constitution. And then Ken sent him, so he actually talked about it on my show. Ken sent him something about the Constitution and the founding fathers and something along those lines. And the Bush people ate it up. Where'd you get this? Where'd you find this? And he said, well, it's just laying around and people, you know, most people know it. They fucking use it in his speech. I mean, that tells you at some level, like it's a really weird thing to think about these people sometimes. Like there's a part of Bush that's connected into this crime family and it's a crime family. And they are, he's essentially on the watch of one of the, the great tragedies and heists in American history, 9-11. So there's that level of high level complicity, just high level evil. And then there's this other level where it's like they have a store in town and they don't know how to run the fucking store. And when some guy who has an independent video company who basically is making stoner videos with Terrence McKenna. And I love Ken. He's, he's a, he's a really talented and really bright guy, but that's what he was doing. And he tosses them some bones around uh, the constitution, the founding fathers, and they snatch it up and he uses it in a fucking speech that tells you something that in a weird way, they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants too. It's almost like they're living in these two separate realities. There's the high level, take the order and go, go execute this thing. And then there's the other lower level stuff, which is make it up as you go, right? Tell them something. Just tell them something. Tell, tell them a nice story. In the meantime, we're working on this big thing called 9-11. We'll tell you about it when you're ready to hear it. Yeah, so weird. I mean, I'm going to play the Bush video. It's very, it's funny. And it, it shows you how fucking naive George Bush is. Naive and not very bright. Uh, and I remember even my old man was like standing up for him at one point. Oh, he's a lot, he's a lot smarter than other people give him credit for. No, he's not. He's an idiot. He might have some native intelligence, but the guy was born in fucking third base. He was given the Texas Rangers. Here you go. By the Texas Rangers. All right. Um, let's get into the Georgism stuff. So I'm going to go into, we're going to go into Rhodesia. Because it's, I think it's worth just um, the Gilded Age, the Gilded Age of New York. Oh, this is really cool. Cities of Light. All right, let's do um, Rhodesia. Not the Rhodesian Ridgeback, although a fine animal. Rhodesia. 
Okay. Now, you guys know that Rhodesia had a civil war. They got fucked over. Totally fucked over. On 11-11 in 1965, run those numbers. Pretty good numbers, huh? 11-11, 65, 21. So you got 32, am I right? 21 and 11, no, 42. Level 42. Uh, Rhodesia issued a unilateral declaration of independence. So what happens is that they want to break away from, want to break away from England and start their own little colony there. But they meet a huge level of resistance. And eventually they fire up a civil war in Rhodesia. And it is known as the, uh, the Bush War. So there were two forces that the Rhodesians were fighting against. One was Zanu, and the other was, I believe, Zanlaw. I always get the two confused. It's easy to get confused. See, it's Zanu. Okay. All right. They have different people that are running those rebel rebel groups. Let me find, because uh, this is where Henry George comes into play. He comes into play in the Rhodesian War. And I'll show you in just a second here. You have Zimbabwe. Check. So now it's Zimbabwe. Check this out. And the winners tell the tale, don't they? The winners tell the tale. That's the uh, flag of Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia. You have the Red Star, which is uh, the communist star, right? And looks like you have, uh, I'm not sure what the bird is. But the red star is, is the symbol that we want to take a look at. So let's get into the uh, the Zanu and Zanla conflicts here. And so it's like a three-way conflict. But ultimately, the two opposing, Zapu and Zanlu, right? Zapu and Zanlu. So um, the, the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, also known as Zapu. So they're they're one of the opposing forces, of forces, right? So here we have the uh, oh, this is Zipra, and all these fucking acronyms. Uh, you get your notable commanders: Alfred Nikita, Mangana, Lookout, Masuku, uh, Joshua, and Como is the guy here, right? So let's just read this. Uh, Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, Zipra, was the military wing of the Zimbabwe African People's Union, ZAPU, a Marxist-Leninist political party in Rhodesia, participated in the Rhodesian Bush War against white minority rule of Rhodesia, modern Zimbabwe. They didn't want white minority. So Ian Smith was doing his best to get to a point where it would be representative of the population. This is one of the commonly held myths and lies around Rhodesia. 
Zipper was formed in the 1960s by nationalist leader Jason Moyo, the deputy of Joshua Nakomo. So Nakomo is, is an important character here. It's basically Nakomo versus Mugabe, right? They're, they don't like each other very much, but they're both socialists and they're both backed by different socialist slash communist um, groups and forces. So Nakomo is backed by, I think they're backed by, I think they're backed by Russia. And Mugabe is backed by China. Now, here's where it gets to be interesting. Well, I think it's interesting regardless. But this is from 1980 to 1995. Following the first majority rule in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, in which around 60% of the population voted, a government led by uh, Abel Muzarewe was formed in 1979 between Ian Smith and the and uh, and and the band and the Baningi, Sitole, Zanu Mwenje, which is split off from Mugabe in the more militant Zanu faction. So this guy, I believe, is the bishop that runs uh, Rhodesia for a couple of years before he's kicked out by Mugabe. The Como proposed to address. Uh, the Zimbabwe Rhodesia's land question with Georgist principles of collecting ground rent, but leaving improvements to those who built it. So Nakomo is a Georgist and brings us back to Henry George in Georgism. So this is one of the ideologies. Look at the scaredy cat. Free land, free men, free trade. So you can see that there is this philosophical underpinning with Georgism. And Nakomo, who is a Marxist, wants to adopt it. He wants to. Meanwhile, Mukabe is, fuck that. We're, we're going to take everything. So you can see even... At that time, there was a conflict between the Russians and the Red Chinese. And Mao saw himself as, as a hardcore Stalinist. He was like Stalin. He was like, it's me and it's the party and that's it. Russia was moving on. This gets back to this idea that generationally, you cannot keep up the original. It's like a sound wave. If you hit a like a gong or a tuning fork, the most intense vibrations will be near the center. It's a ripple effect. And by the time you get out to the outer rings of the vibration, it's really dissipated. So when you look at what's going on in China, they have to do what they do now. Like when you see people being bolted up and thrown into these, uh, like they don't even throw them into camps. By bolting them in, they just make the camps. There's a reason they're doing that is because they understand that generationally they have to disrupt this progression. So if we go back to Tiananmen Square, let's just go back to Tiananmen Square. From the start of Tiananmen Square to, let's say, prior to the Wuhan flu, 
that is a major wave of prosperity and social advancement. And that's coming years after uh, Mao and, and the Great Leap. Right? And that's coming years after the Cultural Revolution. Well, the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap are pretty much the same thing. But when Mao takes over, there's a huge cultural revolution. So what the Chinese have understood is that you have to disrupt things generationally. Because if you don't disrupt things generationally, you're going to get what's happening in this country or what happened in the Soviet Union, which is like, fuck this. Look at the rest of the world. They're making all this money. They get to keep their shit. And we don't. So the Chinese will go in and they will fuck shit up. They'll lock people in. They'll, they'll, they'll create a, 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 a pandemic and a crisis. And they'll, you know what they're doing? They're pruning. That's what the Chinese do. They prune. They're always pruning the bush because they need people to have an intergenerational state of amnesia, socioeconomic amnesia. They can't, they can't afford for their own people to remember how good it was five years ago. They can't do that because we see what happens. People eventually meander off of the reservation. They will. They'll meander off. Like, oh, well, that was great. Can we get some more cool shit like the West has? So this is what happens with the intergenerational culling. And we're, we're in it now. And what they will do is they'll bring in these ideas like Georgism and they're doing it. I, sh I showed you right here in this town with uh, the house very end, which is the answer to the problem reaction. So it is a solution to the reaction, right? Problem. Problem. Problem is we don't, we don't have any affordable housing. And I'm not even talking about like the, the HUD housing. I'm not talking about, you know, that garbage. I'm talking about just being able to rent a fucking house. It's like, it's not there because they weaponized housing and rents through short-term intense economic steroids with Verbo and Airbnb. And for some people like our friends, the Krimis, really helped them, helped them, but they lived in their house. It wasn't like we're going to rent our house out and not be there. They were living there. They were classically an old school B and B. And a lot of people loved going there because they got to hang out with Chris and Steve who were great hosts. I'm sure. Right in the garden. Chris's garden looks fantastic right now. So, you know, we're in this weird place where they're going to have to have a replacement model. The problem, no affordable housing. The reaction is we got we to do something. And the solution is somewhere between Klaus Schwab's all or nothing vision and Georgism. Now, if they rolled out Georgism, which is, well, you get to own your house, but you don't own land. Do you think people would find that to be a reasonable solution to what's going on with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum? You bet your ass they would. 
And this goes back to how they do things with a bill. They create the worst bill. They know, if they if they get a bill passed, which is horrible, they're they're doing cartwheels. Back when they did bills, now they just do executive orders, which I mentioned earlier. So, I feel like this this you're going to see a revival of Georgism. You're going to you, this is going to start to come out now, where where you're going to have pundits on both the left and the right looking at this as a solution and people are staring down the bond villain in Davos and they're saying, well, shit, this isn't a, this is a reasonable solution to what this guy has planned. Now, is that really going to be the solution or is that where they want to take you anyway? Cause the Georgism stuff is coming back. And when I saw this thing, and by the way, like I said, I had an idea that was similar because you've got to figure this thing out now. You can't, like, buying a house, you're going up against BlackRock and Vanguard and Chinese investors and people that have, you know, sold some of their generational property who want to buy something different. Good fucking luck. Rentals, you're in an apartment, if there's an apartment. And the prices, like everything else, are through the roof. So we've got a real issue here. And it gets into the nodes. It starts to get into True Node and Taurus, South Node and Scorpio, Things like security, land, radically reappraising those things. Uranus is coming to town, conjuncting that true node, right? They're getting really close. We're going to have Mars in there. I, I guarantee you we'll see a push for Georgism. They may call it something else or not. They may look at it. They may bring it out. Oh, look at this great book. I haven't really looked that deeply into the um, the social uh, ancestors, socioeconomic ancestors of George. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a George Institute somewhere. Again, he's kind of a front man. Did he have some ideas? Yeah, maybe. Just like I'm sure um, Cyrus Schofield had some ideas for the Schofield Bible. But it does seem to me that George is kind of a made man. He gets all those books published. He travels all over the world. He influences Tolstoy, right? And Tolstoy plays a pretty significant role in the telling of the tale of the Bolshevik Revolution. And maybe Tolstoy, you know, is trying to um, head him off at the pass. Or maybe he's created a narrative for the things that are about to come. All right, let me see if I can do this Bush thing. Here, let me play this. What do I have? We've got about uh, four minutes left. This is funny as hell. It's a three-minute video. All right, here we go. Use your head in order to discern what's real. Your heart to say what's possible. I'll see you guys back here, nine eleven tomorrow. I'll leave you on a little bit of uh, unintentional humor.
Look who's there, Mr. President. Oh, hello, Mr. President. Glad to see you. Glad to hear you. How are you there? I'm well, really. I'm doing well, I'm and I hope you okay, are as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, your mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as you can, and the question is, will you continue to receive the help you need? And I certainly hope so. And it's very important for the United States to continue in the mm -hmm. lead of providing you the the, uh, the the support you need. You've got good. It seems to me you've got good communications with the administration. Mm -hmm. You know, your Secretary of Defense and people like that are continually informing our military. Mm -hmm. of what's needed and our military is very supportive of what you're doing president you didn't want to take russia into nato did you no i wanted them on the fringe of nato i wanted ukraine into nato mm -hmm. no i mean you know, i thought for i thought for a while we'd yeah. be, uh, russia would be uh, more cooperative and then putin changed dramatically he's a rambunctious uh boy at heart uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he, uh, yeah, we had a problem with him in Georgia. Mm -hmm. and he, uh, Putin laid a trap mm -hmm. and he fell into it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and he kind of panicked mm -hmm. during that period of time. You should have asked me whether or not he should have been inside your government. I would have given you advice. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I hadn't talked to Shaka Steely since 2008. Yesterday, I met with our heroes, heroes of Ukraine. They, uh, they were fighting on the information front, and then they were um, mobilized into, uh, recruited into uh, Ukrainian army. They are pilots like you. Uh, they dreamed of talking to you. And yeah, if, if you don't mind, I will put them on the line. That's fuck. See how happy he got? It's like a child. It's like a total child. All right. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Use your head in order to serve show your heart to say it once possible. That's two times. You get it two times today. Thanks for being here. Love you all. Thanks for your support. Take care. Have a great day. Bye for now.